now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time, and welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always, always, always been in you. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you'd like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit our website. It's www.bbsradio.com backslash Reclaiming Authenticity, all one word right there, www.bbsradio.com backslash Reclaiming Authenticity. And each and every week, I always invite people to call in, and so if you'd like to do that, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. I do really appreciate and enjoy talking with several people. And uh, these broadcasts are now podcasted, in case you want to go back and listen again, or maybe you can't stay the whole hour with me. But, um, you know, I invite you to go back into the archives and maybe listen to shows that you uh, you have missed. Uh, there are just a, a huge variety of them, uh, and uh, they're also now available for download on Audible and Amazon Music. And uh, just want to take a moment before we get into uh, today's show that uh, just want to thank everybody for your support, uh, you know, last year and even half the year before that. And, you know, just like say that you now have the opportunity to continue your support by becoming a monthly subscriber. Now, a, a subscription is not required to listen to these uh, podcasts, but it is greatly appreciated. So again, all you would need to do is just go on the website and click on the link and it will take you right to the subscription and uh, you can choose any amount that you feel comfortable giving. So very excited to be with you here every Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and any other time in between. And I uh, just want to say, uh, you know, for those who might be tuning in for the first time, just, uh, just a hearty welcome. Just welcome to the show. I just uh, really appreciate, you know, first-time listeners. And um, just a, a quick summary, um, you know, for those who might be listening for the first time, just what Reclaiming Authenticity is all about. Uh, because each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of our spirituality and our mental health. It may seem like those two um, aspects don't go together, but they certainly do. They blend nicely. They integrate wonderfully. So th these uh, shows integrate spirituality and our mental health. Because you see, it doesn't really matter um, who we are or where we are born or even into what family we were placed. Uh, ours is a world that's filled with relationships. Uh, you know, from the time that we're born, even before then, we are in relationship 
with uh, our, our mothers who had carried us. And uh, even I take it back one step further that um, you know, because we are souls, we already been in a relationship with God. Because um, I always go back to just a wonderful passage in Scripture that says, uh, you know, as God is speaking, you know, before you were born, I knew you. And, uh, you know, just sit with that for a while and uh, just see where that takes you in terms of your own spirituality, that indeed God had a relationship before us, before we were born into this world and just, you know, uh, you know, who we are as a soul. But uh, indeed, we um, we are. You know, social beings, social creatures, if you will, um, who often spend our lives trying to make sense of our world. And um, quite often in trying to make sense of our world, we try to find our place in the world. And, you know, quite often I, I hear a lot of people who just ask that question, you know, well, not only who am I, but really, where do I fit? Who do I fit with? And... Um, as social beings, it's often within this context of the relationships that we have with others that we unfortunately experience a tremendous amount of pain and suffering. And these could be anything from overt acts of uh, betrayal or cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us or vice versa, maybe we have inflicted that on somebody else, uh, to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, but regardless, uh, many people bear the scars of the physical or psychological, emotional, even spiritual woundedness. And uh, as I'll be talking about in this uh, show, in this broadcast, is basically how we tell these stories, you know, of, of who we are and where do we fit in this world? How do we fit with other people and so forth? But again, it's, it's how we tell these stories. Because I'm starting from a premise of we all have stories, we all have lives, okay? But um, it, you know, we listen carefully to the stories that are being shared. But it's, do you listen to how, how you know a person tells their story, or even how you tell your story? Is it from a place of woundedness, or maybe a place of disappointment? And and really, depending on how long we've been carrying around this brokenness, we might tell our stories from that deep, deep place of bitterness and anguish. And yet, ironically, just as we experience our woundedness in relationships, it's also within the context of healthier relationships that we can find our healing, our voice, our authenticity. And I guarantee you, you will begin to tell your story differently because you're, you're, you're then now telling that story from a healthier place. And the difficulty is often finding the courage to discover that which has always been in you. And hence, here we go, we're coming right back to <laughs> reclaiming authenticity. Because that truth has always been in you. It's just, where did it go? Where is it? And so, um, you know, it does take courage to look within, to find what we brought into this world with. You know, those gifts or those graces, the skills, and even our uniqueness that we've come into the world with. Yeah, this is something that uh, the uh, Scottish Franciscan uh, John Duns Scotus 
he called it, you know, he called our uniqueness, uh, uh, chaitas, uh, a thisness that we have, and, and everybody has a thisness. What makes them unique? Because as I just alluded to, I am a firm believer that we come into this world with everything we need for ourselves and others, but through various experiences. We've been you know, tempted, or maybe we already did this, and we gave away parts of ourselves, if not the whole part, of that uniqueness or that thisness. Because perhaps we didn't feel as though we just simply couldn't live up to another person's expectation of us. And that's a cruel trick in and of itself, because that bar, that standard, if you will, is always going to keep moving. It's intended for us not to be able to live up to the expectation of others, because it's always going to be shifting. So we, we try and try and try as hard as we can to reach that bar that somebody else has set for us. And just when we think that we're going to be able to get it and attain it, and then therefore we can get their approval, no, it's just out of reach again. And so we keep trying and trying and trying. And before we know it, we are exhausted. But then we might end up blaming ourselves because we couldn't live up to the expectation of another. But we realize that expectation, that limitation, shall we say, comes from somebody else, not us. But when we rest in the fact that we are who we are, that we do have value dignity, and worth. We don't have to, shall we say, measure up to somebody else's standard of that. We find our peace. We find our grace. We find our gifts. We find our strengths, our resiliency. We find our personalities and so forth. And we can really come into our wholeness. We can really find our voice. We can begin to tell our stories from a place of empowerment or there's sometimes that, um, you know, we might go through life and, and um, as we've, you know, given away parts of ourselves, um, you know, parts of that uniqueness, uh, we may have been tempted to hide that uniqueness from somebody else in order to survive, uh, you know, an abuse in one form or another. Or maybe uh, those aspects of ourselves have been taken away from us, and we didn't really have the strength to hang on to those things. We didn't really have the strength to fight for those things, because we didn't really know ourselves. We didn't know that we had that strength, because we were so gripped with fear, or whatever the issue might have been. But either way, whenever we become aware that we've done these things, it also takes tremendous courage to reclaim who we are. And we can reclaim our voice and our uniqueness or our thisness. And as I said, this is what reclaiming authenticity is all about. Reclaiming authenticity focuses on the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all within the context of our relationships with ourselves, others, and God or the divine. Okay. 
And um, we can take this one step further before we move away from this particular area. And, um, you know, how many of you out there, I know I do, uh, you know, we, we long for, on some days to experience that forgiveness and kindness and compassion in relationships. But um, a, a nice meditation, a nice question that will keep us busy for quite some time is that uh, in our search for forgiveness and kindness and compassion and love and so forth, uh, we have to begin with, well, how do we show those things to ourselves? How do we treat ourselves this way? Because, again, um, I truly believe that whenever we are compassionate with ourselves, we then can be compassionate with others. And whenever we're forgiving of ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with others. And when we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves, we then discover how this opens up our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. And transformation often begins with us. And it just extends out. It ripples out. It's going to affect all of our relationships. Okay? And when, as I said, when this occurs, we'll soon discover that we begin to tell our stories, our life, from a different place in us, uh, a place of healing, wholeness, and gratitude. And our stories are worth telling because there is freedom. There is resiliency, there is empowerment and wisdom that is shared through our lived experiences. Well, how is your heart today? I know that's a tagline of mine. I always start off these shows with that. Um, but truly, how is your heart today? I hope your heart is well and I hope you are well. And I hope that if you are struggling today, even in the very slightest sense, that you'll be able to find that peace and that rest and that comfort that you need. Well, I've entitled uh, today's uh, podcast as Wisdom's Voice is Heard Through Lived Experiences. Okay? Or in other words, if you want to break it down and just something you can put on the back of a t-shirt, if our shoes could talk, what would they say? Okay, kind of a, a take on if these walls could talk, what would they what would they tell? Okay, but just let's let's you know what do we put on our feet? If our shoes could talk, what would they say? Well, yesterday, uh, January twenty seventh, uh, marked the observance of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, which commemorated the victims of the Holocaust. And uh, it was a day that uh, remembered the, the killing of six million Jews and uh, Jewish people and two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population and millions and millions of others by the Nazi regime and its collaborators, all between the years of 1933 through 1945. And uh, January 27th of, of every year has been selected by the United Nations General Assembly. And it started back in November, I think it was 2005. And this resolution came after a special session that was held earlier that year, I think it was on January 24th, which marked the 60th anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camps and the end of the Holocaust. And this was perhaps the first time that the world began to see the horrors and tragedies that actually took place. And there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds 
of Holocaust memorials and museums throughout the world. And thousands and thousands and thousands of stories that had been shared in one form or another. And uh, the, I visit, actually visited two uh, Holocaust memorials here in the United States. Uh, the first one was the Museum of Tolerance in, uh, in Los Angeles. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's just a, just a little take, different take on the, the Holocaust experience because it really examines the roots of racism and prejudice around the world. And um, again, it is quite an experience and it really brings home like, where am I in this? Because we can say, well, I'm not racist or I'm not prejudiced, you know, but it, going through the tour different times in different ways, this question keeps coming up. Are you sure? And the very subtle ways that racism and prejudice could emerge. And we really have to take inventory with ourselves and just say, yeah, there might be something there. I'm, I'm not aware of it. It's very subtle in myself, but w then what do I need to do to eliminate this? Or, or how can I raise awareness, not only in myself, but also with others? So that was the, I'm sorry, the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles. The second museum I visited uh, was the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And uh, this was a little bit more involved. This was a little bit more gut-wrenching for me, I have to, I have to say, uh, because if you've ever been there, um, I'll just share my experience here that uh, at the beginning of the of this Holocaust Museum tour in Washington, you're given um, what I would call a passport uh, with a picture of an individual who was held at one of the concentration camps. And you you hang on to this all the way through the tour. And I remember going through three levels of stories and newspaper headlines and clippings and pictures and political speeches and, and videos upon videos upon videos of, of all the inhumane experiences that are experiments that occurred during 1939 through 1945 in Nazi Germany. And it can be quite emotionally overwhelming. And uh, the part that really tied my stomach in knots was when I came to a large room. I think it was one of the last, um, I forget where it was in the tour, but I think it was like one of the last um, aspects of the tour where you come to this large room and it was just filled with mounds and mounds and mounds of shoes of the exterminated people. They were piled high on both sides of the room, and there was these gigantic exhaust fans. Uh, but still, you could smell the leather of the shoe. You could, you, you know, and I often to this day can still remember the smell. And there was just a faint hint of death in the air. And I saw many people staring at the shoes and weeping because for them, it finally hit home. Every pair of these shoes belonged to a person. In fact, every pair of these shoes was a person. And I remember sitting there and uh, just, again, overwhelmed myself and just thought, 
you know, wow, I wonder what stories these shoes could tell. Not just in, in how the person who owned them died, but rather how the person who owned these shoes, how did they live? What kind of life did they have? And so forth. And then at the end of the tour, um, you, like I said, you were given the passport of a picture of a person who was um, held at one of the concentration camps, and uh, you you submit that uh, that passport, and you find out what happened to the person, whether or not they had died in the concentration camps, or they went on, they lived, and and just a little bit of a history that went with them, but you didn't know that until you got to the end. And it was quite shocking for many, many people to realize that the person, you know, whose face they had been looking at through all this tour um, and the shoes and so forth and, and the newspaper clippings and the videos and all that stuff, you found out that this person had been exterminated. Um, and again, it's just uh, quite revealing to not only what happened uh, during the Holocaust, but also um, does this continue today in one form or another as far as the prejudices or as far as the racism or so forth? Well, if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, um, you'll remember that famous line that starts off at the beginning of the movie, uh, you know, the opening scene where Forrest is sitting there on, on the bench with the woman and, uh, they're both waiting for a bus and there's a famous line, or I should say a theme that starts to be woven throughout the movie. And, uh, Forrest sits there and, uh, you know, besides, you know, mama always said life is like a box of chocolates. We all know that line. Okay, but um, Forrest goes on and he continues to talk about his mother. And uh, he says, you know, Mama always said you could learn a lot about a person just by looking at their shoes. You know, where they're going, where they've been. And he goes on and on and on with this monologue. And then Forrest says, I've worn lots of shoes. And this is where the story or shall we say the journey begins. And we see Forrest wearing lots of shoes throughout his life, the running shoes, the shoes when he was in the army, uh, taking him through Vietnam and, and so forth. The, the special shoes that or the I think they were like Nikes that um, uh, Jenny had bought him for a present one one time and, and so forth. OK, and it's true. Um, we can learn a lot by looking at the different shoes that we and others have worn over the years. I mean, they, they see, we seem to have a shoe for every occasion, you know, shoes for work or shoes for play, shoes for dancing. If you get dressed up and go dancing, there's shoes that we wear at funerals, shoes that we wear for church or synagogue or, uh, or even, you know, the times that we are, um, that we need to remove our shoes if we're coming into a person's house out of respect or if we're at a mosque, we remove our shoes and so forth. But uh, just being reminded of the different shoes that we wear, uh, let's ask ourselves, you know, these questions. You know, where have these shoes taken us? Where have these shoes, you know, where have they brought us to this present moment? You know, what kind of life have we lived so far and where? Are, where is our life taking us? 
because you see behind every pair of shoes, there is a person. And behind every person, there's a story worth waiting to be told. And since there's a story waiting to be told, it is worth listening to for the nuggets of wisdom contained in them. And this is where wisdom is passed on. You know, we can gain knowledge by all the books that we read and so forth, and we can say, oh, yeah, I read about that experience. That seems like it would be wonderful. But if we line up those stories with the lived experience of, yeah, I went through that. I was there. I did this and so forth. We tell those stories from a much deeper, deeper wisdom. It's not just, oh, yeah, I know about something. It is, yeah, I lived through something. I am living something. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the this discovery of what lies within us is is basically one of my deep-seated beliefs, you know, that everybody comes into this world already gifted with the, the skills and the talents and personalities and et cetera um, for this life. And we have these things in order to discover and cultivate and use to the benefit of not just ourselves, but for the benefit of others. Our gifts are very good and precious that we have, but they're not meant to be hoarded. They're meant to be shared. They're meant to be, here, how can I help you? How can I help you discover what lies within you? And so forth. Because, you know, down through history, and you should know by now if you've been following me, I'm a lover of history. Uh, you know, I just, the, the stories contained there are just so, so rich. Uh, and down through history, one of the greatest spiritual, you know, often the, the greatest spiritual teachers and gurus are the ones who enable or empower us to discover the potential of what lies within us. And um, a guru, it, it is typically, you know, a title found in Hinduism, is, is more than a, and we say, a teacher. It's traditionally the, the guru is a reverential figure to the student. And the guru serves as a counselor, you know, to say, you know, one who helps mold the values and shares uh, not just uh, uh, literal knowledge, but this experiential knowledge as one, we could also say, as an exemplar in life, an inspirational source, if you will, and, and one who helps in the spiritual evolution of a student. And uh, a spiritual guide is also, uh, you know, the guru who helps one to discover the same potentialities that the guru himself or herself has already realized Okay, and this is where the experiential knowledge comes in. It's like that which I have found, that which I have discovered, I pass on to you so that you may discover the very same things that lie within you and so forth. And whether it's within Western or Eastern cultures, um, effective teachers, mentors and leaders, you know, by any other name, down throughout history have been characterized by those who help pull out of others, who help pull out of ourselves the very best of who we are. In fact, they, they help us to be healed and empowered to begin telling our stories 
differently. Okay? They, they meet us where we are. They hear our stories. And the reason why they're able to uh, help us and empower us to tell our stories differently is because I have, and I have yet to meet any, you know, teacher, guru, you know, <laughs> who will allow anybody to settle for, for you know, uh, mediocrity. It's just, uh-uh. They meet us where we are, but with a deep, deep-seated love for us. They're like, okay, let's, let's keep going. This healing will take you into much better places, much deeper into who you truly, truly are. So yeah, teachers, mentors, gurus, and so forth will meet us exactly where we are and exactly as we begin to tell our stories. But there is such potential there that even, you know, if there's resistance on our part, you know, a good teacher, a, a, a good, you know, a, a very powerful guru and so forth are very patient with us, knowing that we and everybody else is on his or her own spiritual journey, because everybody arrives at the truth sooner or later. And effective teachers and mentors and leaders and so forth empower others to discover, if I can say this, to help us to discover greatness in themselves and other people. And, you know, this, let's just clarify this, you know, that the, our effective teachers and mentors and leaders never, ever, ever seek to control another person. It's, it's just not in their nature. So if you run across a teacher, a mentor, a leader who wants to control you, forget it. They don't have your best interest in mind. Because effective teachers, mentors, and leaders who have done their own spiritual work, who share their own experiential knowledge, they do not seek to control. They seek to release and, and hope that we have the courage then to embrace that freedom. There is great empowerment here. And great teachers and mentors and leaders can do this because they themselves have discovered how to live in forgiveness and gratitude and love on a daily basis. Well, I would really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So again, if you would like to call in, this number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. I'll be back with you in one minute.
Okay, welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Well, uh, earlier in the show, I was uh, talking about how storytelling and listening to stories go hand in hand. And some people are better storytellers than other others. You know, some stick to a, uh, shall we say, a well-rehearsed script, and, and they want to make sure that every de- little detail is shared. And then, then we have others who are kind of all over the place with their thoughts and they leaving out important details and making up others and so forth. And uh, right before the break, I was sharing, you know, just how great teachers and mentors and leaders really empower us to get in touch with those stories. And they listen to our stories. And, you know, from where in us are we telling that story? Is it from a place of pain and woundedness or bitterness or shame and through their patience and through the sharing of their own lived experiences, that, that, that wisdom that comes through because they have done their spiritual work, they help us to be able to heal and we begin to tell our stories just a little bit differently. Well, speaking of stories, I just want to share with you quickly, uh, came across just a great example of um, how another person describes the effectiveness of teachers and mentors and leaders and gurus. Um, It's uh, from the book Dancing the Dream, Dancing the Dream, written by Jamie Sands, and uh, she talks about how the the ancient Mayans used uh, a great um, object that we find, um, you know, in our houses every day. You might even have one, you know, as part of your dinner. Uh, it is the onion. And uh, she writes that the, the Mayans use the onion to represent the layers upon layers that are peeled away to reveal the spiritual essence of the healed human being. It is natural for humans to grow and change to move in different directions from the patterns developed in childhood. But it is the courageous human who is willing to embrace the work required to strip away the layers of the onion needed to reach authentic freedom. We reach this kind of freedom when we see every adversity or challenge in life as a way of tempering the warrior nature into bright, strong courage, inner knowing, and truth. We learn that the layers of the onion are peeled away when we embrace life with all its many joys and sorrows, understanding that all experiences are valid initiations that give us the power of choice. That ability to discern allows us to choose how to relate to the events in our lives and to move through the doors that those experiences have opened for us. And as I shared right before the break, um, that the most effective uh, leaders and teachers and mentors and gurus never seek to control another person, that instead they seek to release and, and hope that we have the courage then to embrace that freedom. You know, uh, teachers and mentors and leaders that are very effective in our lives empower us and rejoice with us when we find that freedom. Okay. Well, we do have to listen 
to others around us, you know, our teachers, gurus, mentors, and leaders, uh, not, you know, to what they are saying, but, you know, exclusively, but also to their method of how do they impart that truth. And oftentimes the most effective means of teaching come from people who are great storytellers, you know, and uh, from plots, analogies, and even irony. One of my favorite, favorite genres that, uh, or, or way stories are written in different genres, I should say, uh, is irony. You know, it's just we uh, go into a story expecting one thing and, you know, we learn something completely you know, that we need to hear. And storytellers have this shared ancient wisdom that has ignited powerful transformations in those who have ears to hear, so to speak. Okay. And nothing, you know, let's be honest here, nothing touches our hearts as when a great teacher shares a story. And uh, storytelling is one of the basic and yet most powerful means of imparting truth. Because we take in those stories, not necessarily through our ears, but we take in those stories mainly in our hearts. And it is in those moments that we often feel whereby the, the moral of the story, shall we say, has reached in, grabbed us by the soul, and will never, ever let go. And uh, there are, uh, you know, again... There are, then there are some people who have never shared the story of their lives with others. In fact, um, to take this one step deeper, you know, some people have never been given the chance or the permission to share stories that lie deep within, you know, deep, deep, deep underneath the emotional wounds and scars hidden from the rest of the world. And when this occurs, Helping people find their narrative empowers them also to find their healing, which brings us right back into relationships. It all brings us back to relationships with ourselves and others and God or the divine. And uh, narrative therapy is, is actually a style of therapy that uh, helps people become the intuitive expert in their lives. You know, nobody can tell your story like you. After all, it's your story. It's your life. Nobody can say, well, you told that wrong or that wasn't correct or something. No, it's your story. It's your narrative. It's your perspective. Okay? And in narrative therapy, there is an emphasis on the stories that we tell that help us develop and carry, you know, and carry us through our lives. It's a form of therapy that views people as separate from their problems, okay? And an example of this would be able to help a person separate uh, what has happened to them as an individual uh, and, or I should say, and from their interpretations or assumptions from who they are as a person who has this value, dignity, and worth, okay? Because you see, you might have done some pretty awful things in your life but does that make you an awful person? No. Again, you came, you're a person who came into this world, a soul that came into this world, already equipped, already graced, already gifted with everything you need. But perhaps you've not recognized and embraced your fullest potential. 
And therefore, you are that person with the value, dignity, and worth. But there are times when you act in ignorance of it. So, uh, you know, part of the healing from our past, let's say, not only involves telling our stories, but also involves reclaiming our empowerment to rewrite our stories that are now life-empowering and life-affirming. And, and we don't achieve this empowerment from an embellished, delusional view that nicely ties up our stories in a bow, okay? It, there's nothing false about it. We don't try to embellish it to like, well, let's make this sound better. It's like, no, this is, this is our truth. And it, with all its, in, in all its rawness, that's an, actually word, an actual word. But there um, are three wonderful benefits to narrative therapy. And this is what makes it very, very effective. One, um, to place any untold or unspoken moments of a person's life into his or her current story. What are those moments? What are those pieces in our lives or aspects in our lives which we have a hard time telling? Those times in which we don't have the words. The times when we, we just, the pain is so deep, we haven't come up with any word in the English language to touch them. I remember um, listening to uh, a story of a woman who was interviewing um, hundreds of people who lived through the partition in India uh, between, um, shall we say, people of the the Hindi faith uh, and and people who are were you know Muslim or the Islamic faith, and um, the whole when India was becoming you know its own nation. Uh, there was this partition that was drawn on a map, and people had to, based on their family or their faith or even both, you know, they had to get on one side of the line or the other, so to speak. And um, there was a lot of bloodshed that was going on at the time, a lot of just hatred going back and forth and, and so forth. And... Um, I forget the the name of the reporter or the journalist, I should say. Uh, she went in and interviewed people afterwards. And um, she said the most striking thing that she heard uh, had nothing to do with words. But instead, she was very clever in, in how she listened to these people's stories. Because some people were very forthcoming and, and shared painful, horrific, very graphic pictures with her as the, the story started to unfold. And then she said there were people who shared stories who would pause in between. And that struck her as like, I wonder what else is going on here. I wonder what's in the pause. I wonder what's not being shared. I wonder what people have difficulty sharing where you have that moment of silence. And these moments of silence are also part of our stories. So with narrative therapy, it, it actually allows those untold or those un, unspoken moments of a person's life to be placed in the current story. What is it that is very difficult, very painful, very gut-wrenching to share? 
kind of like what I had witnessed in walking through the Holocaust Museum in in uh, Washington D.C. and just coming to that room filled with shoes. There were no words for that. Many people just wept because it finally hit them that for every pair of shoes they were looking at was a person who had died. There was tremendous silence in that room. There was a tremendous pause. Well, the second aspect, uh, or I should say the benefit of narrative therapy is that this, this method also helps people connect to an emotional content and retell their stories from what I like to call a head and heart center. And uh, how many times have you heard story or stories where a person just seems to be reporting, where they just sound very, you know, cognitive, where it's, they're telling the story from their head. There is no emotional content. There is no identification of, like, where are you in this story? Where is your voice? But it's almost told from uh, an, observ you know, an observer. And the last aspect, uh, the last wonderful aspect of narrative therapy is that it, it really helps people construct new perspectives and insights in relation to how they tell their stories. Okay? Again, it's not an embellishment. It's not making it up as we go. It's how then, in the light of everything, and healing is taking place, how are you now telling that story? And let's bring it back to, you know, just what I was talking about with effective teachers and sages and gurus. This is what makes effective teachers and sages and gurus and leaders um, so important in our lives, is that they know how to enter into another person's life history, a life story, and become part of it and transform them into embracing who they are. They, they, they transform the storyteller, if you will, into so everything that you've gone through. Who are you? All the while helping the person realize there is so much more. And this is the potential that they see for people to be something that they may even have yet to realize in themselves. I always gravitate myself. I always gravitate to the teachers and sages and gurus and leaders who can do this very, very, you know, just smooth. They, they just, by their presence, they're able to enter into our, our life stories. They become part of it. They transform us into embracing not only who we are, but then they show us the potential to be something that we haven't even dreamt of yet, that we haven't even realized. And this is the prominent theme that emerges time and time again when people not only find the power of their voice, but also to be able to listen to the empowerment of others. They too find their voice and people are never the same again. And when they find their voice, it's like the sound of thunder. 
And this is often the case with anybody who has gone through any kind of trauma in their life in which a person's assumptions have been completely shattered. And, and to find and reclaim your voice takes time, but it can be done. Healing is for everybody, not just for a select few. And again, gurus, teachers, effective leaders, and so forth know how to empower people. They see that potential in all people to embrace their own truth. Not to lord it over them, not to control another person, but to set them free. To show them what it is that they can become because it's in there. It's in you. It's in me. But do we have the courage to go in and discover those things? And I'd say it takes courage because we may not realize what we're going to find. We may be so afraid that we're going to find something that oh, I wasn't ready for. Or we might be gripped with this fear of, well, if I find something, I have to let go of other things. And we might be so used to the way things were, even the unhealthy parts, that we don't want to let them go. I mean, we, we, for some reason or another, we've found great comfort and peace, so to speak, in hanging on to very dysfunctional things or dysfunctional people in our lives. And we just realize that in order to take hold of something better, we have to let go of what we've been hanging on to that is no longer life-giving to us. Well, an interesting part of not only finding and, and claiming and using our voice and telling our stories from that empowerment that we have and all through the let's, uh, you know, kind of tell the stories from the perspective of the shoes that we've worn. Um, ironically, uh, in being able to, to find and claim and use our voice will have an effect on our brain because a transformation will occur there. And the world of science would call this phenomena brain plasticity or neuroplasticity. Uh, in just basic layman's terms, it just means being able to rewire the brain. And uh, neuroplasticity uh, allows the neurons or the nerve cells in the brain to be able to compensate for injury or disease and to adjust the, you know, the activities in response to new situations or to changes in, let's say, a person's environment. Um, you know, and it is quite fascinating. It is uh, something that still, <clears throat> that I would say it's in its infancy stage that we're just getting started trying to understand, but yet we've also come a long, long way in terms of just how um, plastic or how the brain can rewire itself, how the brain can heal. Because there's an old saying in, in neuroscience that neurons that uh, fire together are wired together. You know, this means that uh, the more you run this neurological circuit you know, in your brain, the stronger that circuit becomes, you know, and which we've known this well before we've even been able to term this neuroplasticity, we would say that, well, practice makes perfect. Because how many times do we practice and practice and practice and do something over and over and over again, and now we our memory with it 
is not just limited to the brain, but down into the very cells, down into our fingertips. And we have that muscle memory where we just, you know, the body remembers. Okay. So the brain can relearn how to, you know, reprocess, you know, sight and sound and taste and smell and touch and, and even how we speak and send signals to muscles so that people can walk again. You know, and that's the fascinating part, the, the ability to relearn and learn new things or to enhance existing cognitive capabilities. Even, you know, uh, research has gone so far to help people recover from stroke or traumatic brain injuries. And uh, there's another great movie out there. It's called The King's Speech. I forget when, what year this movie actually came out in. But um, this was a story of the life of uh, King George's son. And um, uh, there's a, The King's Speech, which was at the beginning of World War II. In, in the movie that starred Colin Firth and Helen Boehm Carter and Joffrey Rush. And um, King George IV had a severe speech impediment. You know, he, he pretty much stuttered. And uh, he uh, actually had to retrain his brain to control his stuttering problem because, well, when you're king, you have to give speeches. Or if you're a president, you have to give speeches. If you are a leader, you're going to have to give speeches. And, and again, it's just a fascinating storyline of how he was able to do this and um, how he actually had to um, come to terms with just early childhood trauma that uh, he uh, had faced and uh, how he had reacted to and how he actually forced down his, his voice because he was not allowed as a child to, shall we say, voice his opinion so he had to go in and reclaim it and he he trained his his brain to stop the stuttering and and continue and um like i said it's just a, a great great movie and um you know you know building upon that you know this research in this area of neuroplasticity has really given hope to millions of people you know from for parents of special needs children it, it really has demonstrated how we can use speech and language therapy to improve communication or even curb, let's say, problem behavioral challenges. And musicians, you know, just wonderfully illustrate this experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Because whenever you learn to play an instrument, you are involving the left brain and the right brain, you know, synchronicity. And music therapy is an excellent way for people to rewire their brain activity, especially when it comes to reading and playing music at the same time. And another good example of neuroplasticity is learning a new language. You know, when, when somebody is learning a new language, the, the neurons responsible for language are often connect with the sounds of language or recognizing pictures associated with the language itself. And so if you're a fan of Rosetta Stone or other language programs that integrate sights and sounds with, with prominent nouns and pronouns and so forth, and verbs and common phrases, uh, of course, you're going to be able to learn that more easily than just say sound repetition alone. 
So there are many, many ways in which we can tell and retell our stories. So I just want to encourage you to, let's say, for a while anyway, look at your shoes and realize the shoes that you wear and the different occasions that you wear different shoes. And uh, where have they taken your life so far? Um, Because you ain't seen nothing yet. And uh, have a, a silent conversation with the shoes and listen to, you know, what they would say if they could talk. And not just where they have taken you, but where do you see your life going from here? And how you have been able to tell your story thus far. And what needs to change and heal in your life so that you can begin telling your story from healthier places within you rather than from a place of bitterness or rage or anger or disappointment and frustration. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I invite you to visit the website and leave me your comments about today's show, or just reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to hear your comments, and invite you to tune in next Friday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Time. And if you're unable to spend that hour with me next week, I invite you to uh, download one of the podcasts and listen that way. So in the meantime, may you be at peace, may you find your voice, and until we talk to each other again, may God hold us in God's hands. Take care. God bless. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.